We're continuing our study of holiness this morning, James chapter 1. And James is one of my favorite books. I had to memorize the whole book when I was in high school. And I'm glad the teacher made me do that because it has stuck with me. There's a lot of practical stuff in the book of James. And this morning we're going to see that as we look at what James 1 has to say about how God makes us holy. But we're going to read just the first part of this chapter, James chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 2. Verse 1 is an introduction about the author, James, um, not the Apostle James. This is actually James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, a half-brother of Christ who's writing this. And verse 2, he starts this way. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We will stop there for now, and let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at what God has for us today. Our Lord and Father, we just need your help now, and as we look into your word, we ask that your spirit would guide us and help us to understand these things that you want to teach us today. Lord, we can't understand these without your spirit. We can't apply these without your wisdom being applied to us by your spirit. And so, Lord, help us just to submit ourselves to your work. I pray that you would just help us to focus, remove distractions, and open our minds to what you have for us today. Lord, we want your work to be accomplished during this time. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use me as your mouthpiece, as your instrument and tool. Lord, I'm just a piece of clay, and yet you can speak through me, and that's what I ask, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, empower me with your spirit, fill me with your spirit, give me strength of voice and strength of mind, give me your wisdom to speak, so that we might be challenged by you and hear your truth. Lord, we'll give you the the praise and glory that you deserve, and may you 
receive all of the, the praise today as we spend this time with you. And we thank you for what you're going to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we've been studying through this topic or this subject of holiness over the past several weeks. And just as a review last week, we remember or we uh, looked over the fact that holiness is for God's purposes. And we have to understand that. We have to get the importance of understanding God's purpose for God's holiness really to mean anything or actually be, be created in us by him. But there were three aspects to the purpose of God for holiness in us. The first one is that he might be able to show his glory in our lives, that we reflect his character as he instills in us the character of Jesus Christ. And I use the illustration of the moon. We're just a piece of rock. He's the sun. He reflects his light off of us. And as we become holy and reflect his character, then other people will see that in us. So the first one is that we are able to show his glory. The second is that we are sanctified, and that's part of the first one, that we are dedicated, set apart for the purpose of glorifying God and for the purpose of reflecting his glory in our lives. And by, in, in doing that, he has to remove from us ourselves so that he can be reflected through us. So it's, that's the process of sanctification. And then the third purpose is so that we can edify others. And we can only do that as... His character is reflected from us to others. We can't encourage each other in our own love. We can only encourage each other in the love of God. We can't give each other hope in what we have or what we can do. We can only give each other hope in what God can do. And so that sanctification, the holiness that God gives us or that God produces in us is for the purpose of sanctifying and edifying other people. And that's why God has saved us. So that's his purpose, and we can't want holiness in our lives for any other reason than what God has already determined. We can't say, okay, God, I want to be holy so I can benefit more, so I can have more blessings, so I can be a better person. That's not the purpose. We have to follow God's purpose, and we have to want God's purpose. So true holiness only comes as God makes us more like Jesus Christ as we submit to his work. And he uses his truth and his word and the Holy Spirit to use that truth and his word to change us, to change our thinking, as we've seen in the past couple weeks. If our thinking becomes conformed to the truth of God, then we will become more like Jesus Christ. So holiness, really, is then God developing within us the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. And we have to be emptied of ourself in order for that to happen. So there's two parts that God uses, and that's what we're going to look today, is how does God actually produce holiness in us? The two-part process is God puts off the old man, and that's commanded in Scripture for us to put off the old man, to mortify the flesh, to get rid of self, and then he puts on the new man, which is Jesus Christ. So it's a putting off of what we were a putting on of what we need to become. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, Paul says this, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And he's talking about our fleshly character, our old nature. He says, consider it to be dead, because you're no longer bound in sin. In Christ, we're now freed. So consider the old man to be dead. 
Just don't give it life. And then he lists things that are characteristic of that. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. We all used to be like that. Remember last week we looked at the works of the flesh. Okay? So these are the works of the flesh when we live for ourselves. And he says, but put off also now these things, anger, wrath, Malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So it's basically putting off all of that stuff that used to define us. And God does that as he helps us empty ourselves of ourself. And then he says, and we put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge. There's the thinking process, the understanding of the truth. After the image of him that created him. In other words, after the image of Christ. So that's what we're supposed to become like. Put off ourselves, put on Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 is a parallel passage to this. In verses 20 through 24, Paul says, But ye have not so learned Christ. He's talking about worldly affections, worldly lusts, and living for ourselves. He says, You haven't learned that in Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So holiness, the process is God removing the old man, the things that used to define us, and putting on or putting in us the character of Jesus Christ. That's the process. Putting off, putting on. And we're commanded in Scripture, we have these two passages, and there's many um, uh, illustrations that Paul gives us throughout the epistles. He gives us uh, many allusions to that same principle throughout the epistles, that, again, it's not about me, it's all about God. I have to get rid of me I have to let God instill in me the character of Jesus Christ. That was the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, he saw Christ, he said, he must increase, I must decrease. Less of me, more of him. And so that's really what holiness comes down to. God wants us to live less of me and more of him. And we do that by putting off the old and putting on the new. He replaces the unusable in us with what he needs to put in us to be able to be used by him. And we looked at that over the last several weeks. It's a, 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 a transformation of our thinking. The truth has to replace the lie. The lie is, I'm most important. What I want is most important. My pleasure, my satisfaction, my life, that's what's important. That's how the world thinks. The transformation is that what God says is important. What God wants for me is important. God's purposes supersede my purposes and my goals and my desires. So the process of holiness or sanctification is basically comprised of removing our reliance on our flesh or living for our flesh and then learning to rely on the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ. We cannot do that ourselves. We can't just wake up one day and say, okay, I'm going to decide to be holy today. I'm going to decide that I'm going to be like Jesus Christ. That's pride, okay? 
That's what Satan said just before he was thrown out of heaven. I'm going to be like God. We can't do it. We are sinful. We are uh, finite. We are mortal. We are flawed. We can't do it. And so it has to be the process of God taking out of us the things which he cannot use to instill in us the things which he can use. Now, the rest of the time, we're going to look at James and then go to 1 Peter and see how does God actually do that? What is this process of taking out the old, putting in the new? Now, I'm going to take a little different approach this morning. I don't have a three-point outline or a ten-point outline or however many point outline, okay? I want to look at what the Bible says. And we're going to break down what we've read here in James chapter 1. So I'm going to go through verse by verse and try to explain to you this process that God has given us of how he creates holiness in us. So if you go back to James chapter 1 and start at verse 2, he starts by saying this, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. The word there is trials, suffering, pain. Now, I want you to get used to those words because this entire passage deals with our suffering and our pain. And he starts by saying, when you have suffering and pain, when things don't go the way they're supposed to go, when your life gets hard and seems to be falling apart, count it all joy. How am I supposed to rejoice when nothing is working, when I feel terrible? when my body aches, when the car's falling apart, when the mortgage is not paid, when all the life seems to be against me, how do I count that joy? Because God's in control of it. This is his process. Taking our pain and our suffering, all those trials that push us to the limit so that we turn to God and stop relying on ourselves. So the short version of the message is this. God uses all of our trials and all of our suffering and all of our pain in our life to help us to stop relying on ourself and what we have in the world and realize that the only reliance we can have is God. Because it's when we hit bottom, that's when we finally look up. And so God knows that truth. And that's the purpose for suffering. It is through suffering and pain that God makes us holy. Now look at this passage. passage, Okay, We're going to keep going. He says, first of all, count it all joy. Why? Verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now that trying of your faith, I think people have used that phrase all the time. In my house for 26 years, We've had children growing up, and you talk about trying your faith, okay? Kids have a way of doing that. And I've told my wife several times, you know, it's only by God's grace that I haven't lost my sanctification because we have six kids, you know? And they drive you to the edge. Now, it's not just kids, okay? And I love my kids. I wouldn't trade them for anything. God has taught me a lot in trying to raise them. He's taught me a lot about myself, And all the flaws that I have because your kids become a miniature version of yourself in the worst form. Okay? You can see yourself in your kids and then you start to realize, that's what I am? Yeah, that's what we are. Okay? 
But he says, the trying of your faith worketh patience. Whatever those circumstances are, whatever the trials are, whatever pain and suffering God brings into your life, it's for the purpose of building in us patience. Now, the word patience here is not just, okay, I'm going to wait till it's over and then I can thank God. No, it's rejoice and thank God in the trial while it's happening to you. And the patience is the word hupomone. In Greek, it means endurance. The difference between patience and endurance is this. When you're in the trial, you patiently wait for it to be over. Right? And then when it's over, you no longer need patience. Because it's done. Endurance is we continue to trust God through the trial. But when it's done, we continue to trust God. It doesn't ever end. It's not an uh, intermediate thing or intermittent thing that comes and goes as the trials come and go. Endurance is consistent. We consistently learn to trust God. Now, life might be like a roller coaster. You know, we're up one moment, everything's good, and then we're down at the bottom when trials hit, and we have to have patience. And then we're up when it's over again, and then we're down again. And so life continues in this cycle. I had a pastor once say, the reason God gives you trials is to teach you how to have patience and how to continue in endurance to get to the next trial, okay? Because that's what life is. It's a series of trials until we're dead, and then they will stop. But that's what life is all about. God gives us a series of trials and persecution and pain and suffering so that we learn to trust him consistently, So that's what James says. The trying of your faith worketh patience or endurance. And then in verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work. That means let patience or that endurance create in you that enduring faith, that trust in God, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Those two words, perfect and entire, kind of embody holiness. That is what God wants us to become. Perfect, entire. It means complete or mature. It doesn't mean that we're going to be without sin. That's not what it's inferring here. What it means is that we're going to learn to trust God and we're going to become mature in our thinking and living. And maturity means we more and more submit to the truth of God and follow the leading of his spirit. And it shows in how we live. It shows in how we trust. It shows in how we talk. Maturity shows in how we submit to the work of God through trials. So let patience have her perfect work. It's the trials of our faith that works endurance and patience in us, causing us to rely upon God as he develops in us the holiness that he wants us to have. In in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, the verse says, Tribulation worketh patience. In other words, the same thing we see in James. It is the trials, it is the pain, it is the suffering that teaches us endurance, how to trust God through the hard times, okay? And in Hebrews chapter 11, God gives us a whole list of people through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament who went through persecution, hard times, trials, suffering, pain, even death. And here is our hall of faith, as we call it. We're not going to read through it, but take a look at the list of those people who were tried, who had troubles in their life, and they trusted God and are recommended to us as examples of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And then 
chapter 12 begins this way. It says, seeing, therefore, that we have this great cloud of witnesses, these people who can testify to God's faithfulness, even in the hard times, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily doth beset us, and let us run the race with patience. Endurance is the word, hupomone. God is faithful. We have all these people that can testify that God's going to be faithful through the hardest times of our lives. And he says, therefore, put aside the sin which so easily doth beset you. What is that sin? Doubt and unbelief. Why? Because we get into the trials, we experience the pain and suffering in our life, and our first thing that comes to our mind is, does God really care about me? Does God care that I'm going through this? See, that's doubt. That is Satan whispering in our ear, does God really care? When God promises to be with us through everything, when Jesus said to his disciples, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We take that and we go, okay, well, I know God said that. And then Satan comes up and says, did God really mean all the time? Just like he did to Eve. Did God really mean that? Did God really mean what he said? Because when we get into trials, we go, where's the blessing? Where's the presence of God? Where's the comfort? Where's the healing? Did God really mean he was going to be with us? He's going to take care of us? He's going to provide our needs? See, that's the doubt. But it's our response in trials that demonstrates our true character of faith. How we respond to trials reveals to us, not reveals to God. He already knows what's inside. But how we respond to trials and to pain and suffering reveals to us and to others what's really here. Are we trusting God? Or do we have a huge problem with unbelief and doubt that only comes out when we're suffering because we can't understand how God would abandon us? And Hebrews 11 says, Here's all these people that went through stuff that you're going to go through, probably not nearly as bad as what they went through. And yet they trusted God. And he says, all these people are witnesses to God's faithfulness, even in the worst times of life. Therefore, set aside that weight, set aside that sin of unbelief and doubt, which so easily throws us off track. And start running the race with endurance, trusting God through the hard times. Coming back to James chapter 1, look at verse 5. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, that's understanding of this truth. Understanding the truth that God is consistently keeping his promises. That God always will be there. That God will sustain us. He will provide for us. He will provide healing. He is there. Okay? If we lack wisdom, let him ask of God that God giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Again, what's the question that comes to our mind in trials? Why, God? Why did you pick me? Why do I have to go through this? Now, he may not answer the why. And we may never find that out. Sometimes we'll be 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and then we look back and we go, oh, I get it. I understand now. Sometimes we don't. We go, I still don't get why I had to do that. Why did God allow me to go through that? We may find out in heaven, we may not. But the point is, 
It comes down to do we believe Romans 8.28 when it says, and we know that all things work together for good. See, the process by which God makes us holy is the process of going through suffering and trials. And here James says, do you lack wisdom? Do you lack the understanding that God uses trials and pain and suffering to make you holy? Ask God. God will help you to understand that. And he's going to give you that understanding liberally. He's not going to withhold it. But we have to gain wisdom God's way, not the way we want to gain it. How do we gain wisdom? I mean, even from an earthly perspective, how do we gain wisdom? How do we gain understanding about things? Experience is the best teacher, right? You've been through it. And so we say, oh, yeah, I understand things now because I've been through that. We can empathize with people who are going through things if we've gone through them. And we have wisdom as far as those situations are concerned. So God gives us wisdom through our trials and suffering. And the wisdom is that God uses those trials and suffering to make us more like Christ. That's what James is telling us. The wisdom that God wants to give us is the understanding of what is truly important in this life. And what's truly important? God's purpose. We saw that. God wants us to be holy for his purpose. So we can glorify him. So we can edify others. So that we can be sanctified to reflect the nature of Jesus Christ. That's what's important. And that's wisdom. So true faith, then, is consistent in enduring through trials as we do what's right and trust God in the face of evil and persecution. That's the wisdom that James is talking about. Spiritual growth and holiness are our priorities as we grow in holiness, as we grow in our love for God, as we grow in our trust of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says this, Without holiness we will not see God. Now, there's a lot of implications or a lot of applications in that verse. If we are not interested in becoming holy, that means we're probably not saved. So we won't see God at all in this life or in the next. But let's say we are saved. Let's say we're just struggling with this doubt and unbelief in our life. If we have not the wisdom of understanding that God uses those hard times to build in us that holiness, to create that reliance on him, to build endurance in doing what's right, then we will not see God's hand in the circumstances of our life. See, that's what this wisdom is all about. This is what God wants us to learn, that he uses our circumstances, the hard circumstances of life, to teach us to trust him. Later in James chapter 3, verse 17, James says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. It sounds like this fruit of the Spirit. And that's exactly what it is. God says, my wisdom is understanding that I have a purpose for this, and therefore, no matter what you're going through, you need to rely on the Spirit to reflect his character through you, even in the worst of circumstances. That's the wisdom that God wants to give us. So it's a reflection in our lives of the fruit of the Spirit when we accept God's plan for our life. That's wisdom. Verse 6, 
In James chapter 1, he says, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. If you lack faith, if you lack wisdom, ask God in faith, nothing wavering. If you ask God for wisdom, then you're asking God basically to make you holy as he's commanded us to be holy. Okay? So we say, God, I don't understand. I need wisdom. But with the wisdom comes holiness. You can't separate the two. We just saw God defines wisdom and holiness as inseparable. And so if we ask in faith, he says, nothing wavering. Be honest, be sincere, be dedicated to your request for holiness that comes with wisdom. And then he says, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. See, we're talking about becoming holy, about becoming a mature believer, trusting God more in our life and being faithful to God. So if you want that in your life then you have to expect that God is going to build that in you through trials and suffering. So when we ask God for wisdom, what we're saying is, God, okay, whatever it takes, whatever trials you want to bring in my life, whatever suffering that I have to go through, whatever pain I have to experience, I'm ready. It's all worth it. Because holiness is more important than my physical comfort. And he says, nothing wavering. You can't expect God to give you wisdom and holiness and not go through suffering. It doesn't work that way. Trusting God means you learn to consistently trust him no matter what your circumstances are. Right? Faith does not depend on our circumstances. Faith does not depend on how we feel. Faith is a consistent dedication and submission to to God's will. So whatever he wants to do, that's okay. And I'll continue to trust him. And so all that suffering and all of our trials are part of God's plan to make us holy as we learn what is important to God, not what's important to us. Verse 7, he says, for let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. This is a man that wavereth. In verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. See, God can't produce holiness in a life that is not totally surrendered to, to accepting whatever God's will is. If we want to say, go to God and say, okay, God, I want wisdom, I want holiness, but I don't want to have to go through the hard stuff. Find an easier way, right? My dad, when I was young, used to promise us stuff to get us to do things around the house. Um, you know, if I would cut grass, he would give me a dollar or whatever. That was a lot of money back then, okay? I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was, but a dollar was a lot to me. And so I'd get out there, and I'd cut the grass. And there were some days I just didn't feel like cutting grass, and so I'd try to take a shortcut. I'd cut what he could see when he looked out the window, okay? You're getting a glimpse into my human side, okay? I'm no better or than anybody else here. I, I had, let's just say I was not perfect as a child. I was a human being with all of the fallen nature that showed every day. But I would do just enough that I thought to get by. And then I would go in, okay, I'm done. I can have the dollar. And when he started walking to the door, I knew he was in trouble. Because, you know, sometimes he'd just look out the window, okay, it looks good. And when he walked out the door, then I knew, okay, he's going to see what I didn't do. See, I tried to take the shortcut. God says there's no shortcuts. You can't have it the easy way. 
You either accept God's way of producing holiness and wisdom in you, or you're not going to get it. And that's what James is saying. We, a double-minded man. We can't have wisdom and holiness without going through God's process of building that in us through trials and persecution and pain and suffering in our life. Because it's in those trials and persecution, it's in those, pain, those, those times of pain and suffering that we realize we have nothing in ourselves and nothing of this world that we can d- depend on, and all we have left is God. And that's all we really need. When we have huge natural disasters that occur in our world, you know, volcanoes, earthquakes, or, you know, a major catastrophe when a plane crashes or, you know, buildings burn or whatever, you know, you hear on the news even of people crying out to God to help them. Why? Because when life is out of control and there's nothing we can do, he's all we have left. Even for unsaved people. And the problem is, that's how Christians think. God is our last resort. God should be our first resort. And so he drives us into these situations where we have nothing left to hold on to but him to help us to realize all we need is him. And that's the process of holiness. And he says, you can't have it any other way. You're unstable if you think you can ask God for holiness and wisdom and not go through God's process to get it. Philippians chapter 3, Paul talked about this. He said in verses 12 through 16, I haven't already obtained, not that I have already obtained or have already become perfect. In other words, obtained holiness. He says, but I press on so that I may lay hold for that which I was also laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forth to those things which are ahead. I press toward the prize of the upward call of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press toward the goal of God making me more like Jesus Christ no matter what it takes. And Paul says, therefore, as many as are perfect, let us have this attitude. Let us have this mind, this right thinking process. And if any of you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've already attained. You can't be holy apart from the process that God has already declared through which you have to go to obtain it. There's no shortcuts. And if you think there's shortcuts, you're a double-minded man. James goes on in verse 9. He gives us examples of this. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. He gives us this contrast of the poor and the rich person. Now, if you are a rich person and your life is going well and you have everything you need and you're healthy and there's no problems in your life, we praise God, right? I mean, that's when we're most likely to praise God is when everything is okay. Thank you, Lord. My life is in, you know, going well. I have everything I need. You're taking care of me. I know you love me. Do we do that when things fall apart? When we're destitute? When we're sick? So he says, let the rich man rejoice when he is made low, when you lose everything. 
when life is not good, when our health fails, why do we rejoice? Because then we realize how unimportant all of the stuff we're thanking the Lord for really is in our lives. And we focus on the fact that we still have God, which is the most important thing. And so when God removes all of the earthly stuff and removes all of our comfort, then we realize what's really important, our reliance on God. See, that's the process of holiness. That's the thinking of holiness. All I need is God. My life does not exist for me to enjoy it. My life does not exist for me to be comfortable. My life exists so that God can use me in whatever way he chooses to fulfill his will. So he says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. When you start with nothing, you realize, I have everything I need in God. God blesses us even when we don't deserve it. God saves us even when we don't deserve it. And so I'm blessed. Even if I have nothing on this earth and I don't even have my health and I don't have uh, riches or friends or anything, we become like Job. And Job's response to God taking everything away, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And he explains in verse 11, See, the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, it withereth the grass. This life and all the physical blessings, all the stuff that we trust in, all the stuff that we thank God for, for the most part, it's all going to go away. What are we going to have in heaven? What are you going to take that you have now to heaven with you? Nothing. Not even this body. Okay, we're going to get a new body. Thankfully, okay? No more pain, no more suffering, no more aches in the morning. No more stubbing your toe on the bedstand. We have a perfect body. So we're not even going to take this body with us. So why is this and all of this so important? We only need God. If we think that God does no longer care about us when he lets us get sick or when we lose stuff or we lose someone or something bad happens, see, our priorities are misplaced. MacArthur puts it this way. He says, trials are the great equalizer, bringing all of God's children to dependence on him. When we're down to the lowest common denominator, And all we have left is God. And that's all we need. Verse 12, James goes on. Blessed is that man that endureth temptation. Trying, trials, pain, suffering is all encompassed in that word temptation. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation or testing. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Have you heard that before? We heard that. In Revelation, as we went through the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Christ points out all the problems in those churches. He says, but almost in every one of them, he that overcometh, I will give him a crown of life. Those people that endure through the sin, through the persecution, through the trial, through the pain, through the suffering, those people that endure and stay faithful will receive the crown of life. That endurance is is a hallmark of true faith. 
He says, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. It doesn't say trust him. James says he promised that crown of life to those who love him. See, it's one thing to just kind of be a fatalist and go, okay, God, I know you're in control, and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't change my life, so go ahead. Do what you're going to do. I'll get through it. I trust you. Is that love? See, love casts out all fear, First John tells us. We don't just go to God and say, okay, God, I'm not going to like it, but do what you're going to do. We love him, so we know that he loves us. First John tells us that in First John 4. We love him because he first loved us. And so if we understand God's love for us, then that builds or matures our love for him. God will never do anything that's bad for me. Romans 8.28, again, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. So James says he has promised a crown of life to those who love him, who learn to trust him in love, not just out of duty. Love trumps duty. We don't obey him because we have to. We don't obey him and listen to him because if we don't, we may get punished. God might put us through persecution. He might make us sick, whatever. Okay, that's not the thinking. The thinking is... God loves me, therefore I love him, and everything I do in response even to trials and pain and suffering in my life is I will continue to love God and trust him no matter what happens. That's true faith. And that's what James says. The ones who are truly saved, the ones who will receive the crown of life, are those who continually, through endurance, love God. Verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, the word tempted here is an interesting word. In the Greek, it is parasmos, okay? It's the same word that you see in the verse previously where it says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Wait a minute. If God allows temptation, then why can't we say we're tempted of God, right? Well, in verse 13, it's talking about temptation to sin, but it's the same word. Let me explain how this works. The reason it's the same word but it has a different meaning is because it all depends on our response. It's the same circumstances. When we're tempted, in other words, when we're tried, when we're put in a situation where we can't rely on our own strength anymore, which is basically all of life, our response will tell us whether it's true faith or whether we end up in sin. Because let's just say we face a sickness. All of a sudden we find out something is wrong with my body. It's not working right, and there's no cure. So eventually it's going to kill me. What is my response to that? True faith, if it's a trial that will build endurance to maturity, to holiness, then we respond this way. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy. Thank you, Lord. I don't know why you're doing this, but thank you. I'm going to rejoice in the fact that you're in control and you're doing something in me that I don't understand yet, but I know it's going to be good. So I can't wait to see what you're going to do. That's faith. Or the other response is this, and this is when it becomes a sin. We go to God and say, God, that's not fair. Why me? Why this? Everything was going good, and then you had to go and ruin it. 
We've just crossed over into sin. Now, God doesn't make us sin, and we can't blame him for our response. We also can't blame him for the circumstance, because if we're truly believers, then we have to understand that God has to use those hard circumstances to bring us closer to him in holiness. So without that, we'll never get there. And so if we complain and argue and doubt God's love for us and doubt God's faithfulness, basically that becomes our sin of unbelief. We looked at that in Hebrews chapter 12. And so that trial now becomes the source of sin for us. And he explains it in verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of what? His own lust. See, we complain, we enter into sin when we look at every circumstance from the perspective of what I want rather than what God wants. And when we approach things from that perspective, now we've sinned. Why? Because we don't give God the glory. We don't thank him. We don't rejoice. We complain to God that he ruined our life. He didn't go according to our plan. He changed things without our permission. And he says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The word there in verse 14 is trapped or brought into bondage. We, are, we just looked at that at the beginning of the message. In Colossians, it says we are to put off the old man with all of those deeds. What are those deeds? The lust of the flesh. And so when we approach those situations in our trials with this attitude of, God, you ruined my life. We've just put ourselves back into the old man. We didn't put off the old man. Now we're holding on to it with everything we can. So that's what causes sin. Verse 15, when the lust, the desires of our flesh, hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. It's a manifestation of where our faith truly lies. Are we trusting God only to do for us what we want, which is a false faith, by the way? Or are we trusting God to do whatever he wants for his purpose? What we want is our lust. What God wants is submission. And so if we complain because God takes away something that appeals to us, it's a clear sign that sin still controls us. That is the opposite of true faith. Now, the question again, why does God allow such bad things to happen to good people? To make us realize that we're not good. We're still full of ourself, and he has to get rid of it. And if you're not willing to lose what God wants to take away to make you holy, then you really don't want God's version of salvation or holiness. You want what you want, not what God wants. Verse 16, do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't think this way. Don't get caught by the lie, James says. That's the lie, that God wants to make your life better. This can be your best life now. That's the lie. Because if this is your best life, the next life is going to be torment and hell. This life doesn't matter a whole lot as far as our comfort, as far as what we get out of it. God's purpose for us in this life, to glorify him, to become holy. For God to strip away everything of ourself so that he shows through us. That's the best life for us now. 
And he says, don't be mistaken. You can't be made holy and still have everything that you want. They're opposites. They contradict each other. And that's why God has to put off from us the flesh. He has to separate from us all of the reliance we have on ourselves, all of the things that we want for ourselves, all of the pleasure, all of the satisfaction that we want out of life. And he puts us through pain and suffering to help us to realize those things are not important. What's important is what he wants to use us for. We're just tools, clay pots. We don't get to make the choice about our lives. Are we going to submit to God's use for us, or are we going to fight God our whole lives because we want something else? He says, don't err, my beloved brethren. You can't have the flesh and God's holiness at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. And he says in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, people want to take this verse out of the context of this chapter. And say, well, look, God gives us all the good things that we can enjoy, right? The context is about suffering and pain and trials and temptations. And then he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That good gift, those perfect gifts from God, are the trials and the suffering and the pain that we have to go through in this life to help us to realize that God is all we need. And that holiness is the only goal and the only purpose that God has called us to. Trials and suffering are good gifts, and they come from God. And it says that he doesn't vary. He doesn't waver back and forth like us because we keep thinking, how come I don't understand? God, you ruined my life. Do you really love me? No, God's love is consistent. God is faithful. God never changes his plan. His plan is and always has been the same for us. We just don't want to go down that path. God doesn't vary. We do. If you find yourself away from God, it's not because God has changed course. It's because we've gone off the path that stays close to him. Very quickly, 1 Peter has this same message. I'm not going to spend much time in this. I told my wife this morning, I said, this is going to be a challenge because I'm obviously preaching from James chapter 1 this morning, but we're going to preach through the whole book of 1 Peter. Okay, I'm not. I'm just going to read passages because the entire book of 1 Peter addresses this very topic. And I just want to read some passages for you. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. You're only two pages away. 1 Peter chapter 1, very quickly. He starts in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, there's salvation. He explains it in verse 4. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved for you in heaven. There's the promise of God that we have hope in, right? Verse 5. Who, that's talking about us, who are kept by the power of God through, what's the word? Submission. (laughs) It's the word. Faith. Through submission to God unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. How many of you are perfectly saved, and that means perfectly glorified? Every bit of sin is now removed from your body. There's no effects of sin that still plague you. Okay, right. We're not there yet. We're still hoping for the final completion of our salvation in heaven. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, but we haven't gotten it all yet. And that's what he says in verse 5. 
It's ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Sounds exactly like the beginning of James, doesn't it? Rejoice through the temptations, the trials. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Your trials make you holy. And it's holiness that only is developed in truly saved people. 1 Peter chapter 2, flip the page if you have to, starting at verse 19. Okay, I'm just going through these chapters to show you this. He says, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, Peter's addressing that suffering that we have to go through even when it's not our own fault, even if it's not chastisement from God for our sin. Okay, he says you're going to suffer wrongfully. For what glory, verse 20, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye take it patiently? In other words, when you do something wrong and you're chastised, how can you not expect that? If you're a child of God, God chastises those he loves. So you can't go, oh, I don't understand God. Yeah, I did sin, but why? Okay, yeah, God's going to chastise us if we sin. And that's what he says. He says, but, second part of verse 20, but if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. When you suffer, when it's not because of your own sin, it's still part of God's plan. Therefore, take it patiently. Verse 21, for even hereunto ye were called, because Christ also suffered for us. Why do we suffer even when we don't sin? Because Christ is being built in us. Christ suffered for us, and we will suffer like he did. And he leaves us an example, verse 21, that ye should follow in his steps. Except the difference is, in verse 22, Christ did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. When Christ was on earth and went through unjust suffering, he didn't deserve any of it. He didn't have sin. He should not have been subject to the curse of sin, and yet he did. He was suffering on this earth. He went through the most immense suffering any human being could go through. And Peter says, he's our example. So why do you question God when you have to suffer? Christ went through it. Verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 24, who in his own self bear our sins on his own body in the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whom stripes you are healed. Jump to chapter 3. Chapter 3, starting at verse 14, Peter, again, he goes off on suffering. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, that's not for any fault of your own, happy are ye. You didn't do anything wrong. Why are you suffering? Well, because God has a purpose in it, so be happy about it. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer of every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There are a lot of Christians who are going around today going, man, we got this new president, and some of the stuff that he's doing is just going to destroy the church and destroy Christianity. Sorry, he's not. He can't. Okay? Romans 8 tells me no one can pluck me out of the Father's hand. And our worship of God and the character of God and the faithfulness of God do not depend on who's in the White House. It does not depend on who's ruling the world or who's making the government rules. Okay? 
the government does not control our worship of God. So if we suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. Because God has planned it that way. The purpose is to make you holy. And so when we suffer, even when we didn't do anything wrong, that's God's plan to strip away the flesh, to stop relying on ourselves, and to trust him more fully. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 3, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation as Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. It's better if we suffer even when we don't do anything wrong because that's the will of God for us. Chapter 4. We're going to finish up quickly here. Chapter 4, I'm not going to read all of it, but it starts off, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh ceased from sin. Now, I've given you this illustration before. In the time that Peter wrote this, Christians were being persecuted by the Roman government. They were being fed to lions and wild beasts. They were being burned alive, and one of the tortures was literally being skinned alive and then being left to die. And that's the picture that Peter gives us, he that has suffered in the flesh, to have the flesh removed. And he uses that picture. When the flesh, and he's talking about the fleshly nature, the lust, when that's all stripped away, what's the result? We stop sinning. Because sin is the result of living by our flesh. So if Christ takes all that away through our suffering... We can be holy because we're not trusting our own holiness, our own self, our own substance, our own self-righteousness. All of that's gone. And it only happens through suffering because we realize we can't do it ourselves. Verse 7 in chapter 4, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. Be serious about what's really important. And he says, And watch unto prayer. Watch for Christ. Here's the point. If we're truly seeking God's holiness, if we truly want what God wants for us, if Christ was to come back right now, it's too bad he didn't. Okay, if Christ was to come back right now, in our minds, what would we be thinking? Oh, man, I got to leave that behind. Oh, I regret not being able to do that. Oh, I'm going to miss such and such. That's the wrong thinking. If Christ were to come back right now, the only thing that should be going through our mind is, praise the Lord, we're out of this mess. No more sin. That is the greatest thing about heaven. It's not even that we're going to be in God's presence forever. Okay, people, I've I've heard Christians say, you know, heaven sounds boring. We're going to be sitting around playing harps, singing on... No, that's not what heaven is. We're going to be rejoicing. We're going to be happier than we've ever been in this earth because there's no more sin. We'll be in the presence of God apart from sin and all the curse and all the effects. That's the best part of heaven. And he says, be sober, watch therefore into prayer. We should be praying, Lord, come quickly. I can't wait to get to heaven. Verse 12, 
Jump down to verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But inasmuch, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with exceeding joy. This is where we started, right? Rejoice in trials. Why? Because that's the process that God uses to strip away your lust, to stop, to, to help you stop relying on yourself, to put aside all the goals, all the desires, all the things you want in this world to focus on what's most important. And that's the change in our thinking. When we realize, hey, you know what? Our life really doesn't matter that much as far as all the stuff of the world is concerned. All that matters is that God is glorified in my life. And if he wants to do that through my death, man, that's all the more sooner I'll be with him. Peter goes on, I'm not going to spend all this time, but he gives two categories of suffering. Suffering because we did wrong, suffering for the sake of Christ. And again, suffering for the sake of Christ is better. If we suffer because we did wrong, it's our own, the consequences of our own sin. If we suffer at the hand of others just because we're Christians and trying to live for him and trust him, that brings holiness and endurance. In verse 18, this phrase, this verse is scary. But he says, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? What's going to be saved? When we go to heaven, what, what are you taking with you again? Just the soul. That's all of us that's going. We're going to get a new body. Just the soul. So scarcely, it, yeah, it's almost like, well, those people who are trusting God get in by the skin of their teeth, kind of. But it's only because of God's grace and mercy. You know, and I've, I've said this to a couple people I've heard people say when you get to heaven, they're going to look around and go, wow, I'm surprised at who's here. We should be looking at ourselves and going, wow, how did I ever get here? By God's grace. But the suffering is nothing. The pain that God wants us to go through is nothing. And so the truth about suffering is that it helps us to see where our love really is focused. Do we love God? Do we trust him? Or do we love ourselves? And when we love those things about ourselves and about our life here and about the world that God takes away, then we find ourselves complaining to God about them. God doesn't test us so we can see where our faith lies. He tests us so we can see so we can see where our faith lies. He knows what we are. We don't. There's a movie I want to recommend it. it's called Shadowlands. It's a life it's on the life of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis went through a lot of pain and suffering in his life. He lost his mother at a young age. He went through a very difficult childhood. He struggled as an adult even, got saved later in life, fell in love much later in life, and married a woman who was diagnosed with cancer very soon after their marriage, and they were only married for a couple of years. And he, in response to those trials that God gave him, wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, the problem of pain. Anyway, he gave a speech at one, a, a lecture at one of the gatherings. He was a college professor, but in one of his gatherings, he gave this speech. 
And he, gan- he went like this. Yesterday I read a letter that referred to an event that took place almost a year ago. It was the night when a number one bus drove into a column of young Mo- Royal Marine cadets in Chatham. He killed 24 of them. This letter asked some simple but fundamental questions. Where was God on that December night? Why didn't God stop it? Isn't God supposed to be good? Isn't he supposed to love us? Those are the questions that go through our mind when something like that happens. Then he asked this, does God want us to suffer? What if the answer to that question is yes, God does want us to suffer? He says, you see, I'm not sure that God particularly wants us to be happy. He wants us to love him and to be loved by him. He wants us to grow up. And I suggest to you that this is because God loves us, that he makes us the gift of suffering. Or to put it another way, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses suffering to show us what we really are and where our love truly lies and what we really trust in. And in suffering, we're stripped down to the bare necessity of of only being able to rely on God because we have nothing else left. And we've looked at all the different aspects of suffering, and it's not just chastisement. It comes at the hand of others. And the question I struggled with for a long time was, do we actually suffer because of other people's sin? Do we not get Something that God may want for us because of other people's sin? And the answer is yes. We do. But God uses that suffering to teach us to trust him. Don't trust other people as far as your reliance for life, as far as your dependence for everything. Trust God. So trials and suffering are part of the good gifts that God gives to us. That's the truth that we can't miss. Andrew Murray summed it up this way. He said, first he brought me here, talking about God. It is by his will that I am in this straight place, that suffering or trial. In in that fact, I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love, and he gives me grace to behave as his child. Endurance. Then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. Holiness. Last, in his good time, he will bring me out again, how and when he knows is best. Therefore, let me, stay, let me say I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, and for his time. And that's how we have to look at trials and pain and suffering. God has a purpose for it. God promises us that we will go through suffering. Not because he wants our lives to be hard and miserable, but because he wants us to to learn to trust him. And our attitude toward God's hand in our suffering reflects our commitment to holiness. God cares more about our holiness than he does about our happiness. Because our happiness is not going to get us to heaven. Holiness will. Pursue holiness, Hebrews 12, 14 says, without which no man will see the Lord. 
And the sooner that we accept the truth that God's plan for us includes suffering so that we learn to trust him, to love him rather than our flesh, rather than what we want on this earth, then the sooner we will be on our way to the true holiness that God wants for us and has called us to. You want to be holy? I hope you do because that's the desire that comes with salvation. Expect pain. Expect suffering. Expect trials. And be ready to rejoice because you know that God is going to do something good through it. That's how God makes us holy. By building in us that wisdom and that understanding that James says we need to ask for. God's going to give it to us. But we have to be willing to accept it on his terms, not on our own. We have to accept God's purpose for suffering and pain and trials in our life. Because it's only through that that we will have that holiness that he wants for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have told us how you build holiness in us, how you create that in bringing us through the hardest times of our lives so that we stop relying on ourselves, so that we stop looking at the wrong goals, so that we look only at you because you are the only thing we have left. Lord, teach us to trust you, to love you through the hardest times of our life, knowing that you do love us, that you don't turn from that promise, that your faithfulness does not waver, knowing that you're doing something good in us through the whole process. Lord, I pray that you would make us holy and do whatever it takes and help us to be thankful and be able to rejoice knowing that you're accomplishing your purpose. Help us to be steadfast and build our faith and trust in you through these times. And we look forward with hope to the day that you will take us out of this world when all of the trial, all the suffering, all the pain will be done. But until that day, help us to remain steadfast in our trust in you and in our work for you. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is 394. As we sing, I want you to pay attention to the words.